When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of Pomeroni. And this episode I'm uh, talking to Mary Coughlin. I met her in the Central Hotel and we had a chat. It's about ooh, three weeks ago now probably, before I went to America. Um, there's a little bit of noise in the background of of uh, cups from the barman. So that's what that noise is because we're in the Central Hotel. And it's a brilliant interview. You're going to enjoy it. I, I guarantee you that. Um, I was away for ooh, 10 days in America and I did a gig in the Bronx. I did a little open spot in the uh, place called The Gaff in Manhattan. Then I went to Philadelphia and I came back then to uh, New Jersey and did a lovely gig for Paddy Glennon in a concert room that he has in his house and he sends out invitations and there's about I don't know what 30 40 people there from um, different uh, backgrounds in the from the area and uh, normally his first time he's put on comedy I, I was the first comedian that was put on there so I um, uh, played there with a fellow called Ryan McMullen who is a singer-songwriter from the Belfast area and is now on tour with Ed Sheeran, opening for Ed Sheeran all around Europe for the next three months. Um, and it was great to meet him. And I actually in, I did a quick interview with him, and that'll be in the next podcast. Uh, uh, then I flew to uh, Chicago and did a couple of gigs in McNally's, just outside Chicago in a place called St. Charles. And then came into Chicago and did a gig in the Hideout, which is a lovely venue. Mu again, another music venue uh, that uh, I did comedy in. And that was brilliant, actually. Lovely little bar on a street with nothing but warehouses and uh, kind, of, uh, kind of a dodgy-looking street. But uh, there, right in the middle of it there's this lit up neon lit bar called the hideout and wow it's a really nice bar and so that was it and then I came back I flew back to uh, 
flew back to Newark, got a bus across to JFK, flew to Dublin and then got on a plane straight away to Leeds and did a gig in the Brunel Brunel Club in Leeds on St. Patrick's Night and that became a bit of a weird one because there was some young young people who got the wrong idea about um, uh, so lovely girl competition is a thing that's part of the Father Ted show and sometimes we do it if there's a Father Ted theme uh, where I get a, a few volunteers from the audience to do a lovely walk and a lovely laugh and then make some lovely ham sandwiches so this um, obviously wasn't uh, this is quite ironic uh, um, but as I introduced it uh, some uh, young younger went insane in the audience and started screaming sexist at me and uh, well I, I didn't realise that for a while she was screaming a lot I thought she was just drunk and then I heard the word sexist uh, and so a group of young people became very and one guy was shouting it's not the 1970s um, but they didn't appreciate the irony of the lovely girl competition and then it became very weird because I realised the more I went on with this uh, if you don't get the irony I do seem like a sex pig I'm, get, I'm getting uh, girls to make half sandwiches uh, but it's a weird situation it turned a bit weird at the, a bit, bit punk really it became almost I was being hassled by a young fellow with uh, dreadlocks who was coming up to me and staring at me um, uh, a little white man with dreadlocks but uh, anyway the gig went fine then after that and then I got home and I've been home now for a week almost a week and uh, I'm, I uh, um, newly single well I'm not newly single but I'm, I'm, I'm accepting that I'm single now I suppose uh, so if there's anybody out there uh, wants to um, hook up with a, an elderly gentleman with a, a wonderful um, red microphone that I'm holding now and walking around I'm walking around a park talking to myself there's a very small skinny little dog there tiny dog about the size of a rat but the owners are these kind of hard looking fellas going here yeah how I gonna walk the little tiny dog are you yeah I'm so it's like a handbag type. It's the tiniest dog ever. Um, so uh, this is the interview. Oh, so I'm going into now to uh, my uh, therapist in a second. I think I've just seen him walking by with a bicycle, having a chat. I don't think he should be that casual. Just having a chat with his mate, riding around in a... Before it, before I go in, I know I'm doing my thing. I'm just having a chat with you, but I think he should be in a room for at least half an hour, concentrating on how hard he's going to therapeute me. Uh, 
But no, he's uh, just having a chat with his mate. Okay, well, um, I'm uh, about to go in now, and um, uh, I'll, I'll have a listen. This is a great interview. I've just listened to it, and uh, it's fantastic. And uh, uh, Mary's going to be going on tour in uh, New Zealand and Australia, that area, in the next while. And uh, I'll see you on the other side. Goodbye. I see. We were just talking there before I started recording about the whole tomb. I mean, I've just told you that I was born in tomb, and then this. I've started reading. I actually didn't read much about it until recently, and I'm sh- it's horrifying, really. What? Yeah. Well, when when they discovered it, was it last year or the year before? There was a couple of vigils, and uh, there was a big thing outside the doll, and they asked me would I come down and sing on the back of a lorry and talk about it. But I suppose growing up in Galway. Um, mm in the 60s, the 50s and 60s, we always heard about the Magdalene Laundry. And my father was a soldier. And at some stage, he he was directed by the Department of Defence to go and pick up laundry. And to do all the Renmore barracks, the entire laundry went to the Magdalene Laundry. Mm. So Daddy had horrific stories about girls trying to climb into the lorries and everything, you know. And then there were some friends of her. And we, we talked about the Maggies, you know. Mm. Um, I told all my stories that I knew to Johnny Mulhern, you know, in the 80s when I started singing. And Johnny wrote the song called The Magdalene Laundry. And I would always... And I met a woman in Liverpool whose son had been born in a Magdalene Laundry in Ireland. And she found him after 30 years. So I would always tell stories before I sang the song. Mm. And in 1987 or 1988, the BBC contacted me, BBC Scotland, and asked me would I speak um, on a documentary that they were going to do. Yeah, and would I sing the song live and they would record it and about a year later that all happened but they came to Ireland in 1989 and did a big radio documentary and they interviewed a lot of nuns and I'll never forget an old woman who still lived in a laundry in Waterford, they interviewed her I told them what I knew and I showed them some letters that I had gotten from women over the years people felt they could send them or talk to me about the laundry, about what their experiences were because of the song. Mm-hmm. It touched a lot of people. And, and not just in Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, Canada. Mm-hmm. Places, people, there are these institutions everywhere. Then a channel, uh, Canal 4, I think, was there, Canal 5, a French documentary film company came to Ireland in the late 80s also, and um, they were making a documentary quietly about the Magdalene Laundry. And then I mean, we heard stories. Mm. There were always stories. And we didn't know, you know. When the tomb came, and we knew of babies, and I know, I mean, you know Don Baker, and you know Manix Flynn, and, mm-hmm. and there were stories about boys being beaten in, in places and buried, and you know. And, and there was, you know, as a, as a, as a young ch- teenager growing up in Galway, we heard stuff, you know. And we didn't really know if it was true or not, you know. Mm. Women who died in childbirth were married, buried in unmarked graves. I know down in the west of Ireland that it happened. Um, 
There were a lot of women who and babies who died that were buried outside the graveyard. Um, there's a place in Clifton, there's a place in Enishboffin. So we knew about it, you know. Mm. And so... I know, I just read the statistics. I mean, there was one-third of the children died. One-third of the children... I think it's even more. They were saying, Sean, your man was saying on the radio this morning. And Uh, of malnutrition, I mean... I mean, it's just when you call themselves pro-life, these people. Well, that was my last rant on on Facebook, um, was um, at Christmas when I, I put up a song that I recorded called Nobody which is about homelessness. It's a song that was written um, Mm. anonymously years ago. Nina Simone sang it. And I just said, you know, pro-life my arse. You know, you get born in this country and then nobody gives a shit Mm. what happens, you know, afterwards. Whether you're, um, whether you need special special needs or, you know, the people on the Late Late Show talking about their kids, it's, you know, the spying problem. It just goes on and on and on and on. Mm. And so I did a big rant about pro-lifers and... You know, really, because life doesn't stop after you're born. No, so. it doesn't. No, <laughs> Obviously, sorry, it doesn't. Or before um, you're born. I yeah, mean, when yeah. does it start? You know. But mm. anyway, I've been thinking about getting involved in the debate about now, and I because mm. I'm just kind of sick of it. You know, it's just mm. where is it going to end? You know. And, and uh, I think the denial, the, that fact that there's still denial, though, that's unbelievable. I mean, I've just read that letter that Terry Prone wrote. So. That was on behalf of the Bonsacore nuns to Yeah, you just corrected me there. I thought mm. it was somebody else. Cause mm. I couldn't believe that she um, she even worked for them, you know. Mm. But anyway, I, you know, yeah. But at the um, time when you were growing up, uh, I um, I know that you had it hard anyway yourself growing up. But did you like run away from home with? Because uh, I I went to see you uh, up in Smiths, right? And before one of the songs, he's talked about. Smiths. Oh, JJ's. Oh, yeah, Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just before one of the songs, he's talked about running away with some fella, and all you had was a few packs of crisps, crisps and a pair of chocolates. <laughs> yeah. We, we didn't. We, yeah, we were. We were. We were going to go for the rest of our lives. We thought, but mm. it only lasted a few hours because it got really cold, and we came home. But I left. I, I choose to say now. I left home. Because it wasn't a safe place for me to be, you know. Um, so I left home when I was just after my leaving cert. Mm. I decided to stay until I had the leaving cert done, and I left home a few weeks later. Mm. And I turned sixty in May last year, and I decided for my sixtieth birthday I wanted to reconnect with some of the people that I knew and met that year, some mm. of the women that I knew. And um, most of them had relocated to America. So I went off to America in December Mm. and spent a month visiting all the people that I knew at that time. Mm. And one woman, Vicky, had kept a scrapbook of photographs and bus tickets and concert tickets. And she also had a diary about how much money we spent every day. Yeah. We had traveler's checks. So we went to Dublin first. And I remember being in Dublin. I couldn't remember why. But it was because she, she fancied some fella. So we went there first. That didn't work out. So we went to Limerick. Mm. Then we went to London. And, um, I mean, we were mad, like. Yeah. And But to, st- to go and leave at such a, an age um, was, I suppose, a bit, you know. And I didn't tell my parents where I was. I sent them a postcard after about two weeks. Mm. So but, I, I... mean, that was like... Uh 
at least you have the energy or the fieriness to go and do that. Do you know what I mean? Because a lot of people, I guess, can't get even past. Well, I had been working in a supermarket every uh, weekend and summer holidays and Christmas. So I had a good bit of money stashed mm. in the post office. So for me, it was, um, I mean, if my kids had done something like that, I'd be devastated. Mm. But, you know, if they had just disappeared one morning and left a note and don't worry about me, I left, uh, I left a little um, quote from the prophet, you know, Cal Gibran. Your children are not your own. They're loaned to you for time only. Did you? I did, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I, I just fucked off. And uh, so I, and it was a fun it was a fun December and January um, remembering all the things that we... Because, you know, you have... Well, I'm, you forget things. But you have snippets of things in your head. Did that really happen? Did I really do that? Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. And there your one had it all written down. <laughs> So it was fab, and she, loads of photographs as well. She is, she had photographs, so that was kind of fun. And was that like uh, basically? I mean, I'd, you've talked about it before, but you were abused basically you were by a family member, right? And, uh, a couple of them. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I didn't leave. Well, I mean, that happened to me when I was very, very young. Mm. When I was seven and ten and eleven, that kind of ages. So obviously wasn't going to run away then. I didn't really know. Mm. Didn't really know. I mean, I've worked on on this a lot. I've I, I've done some regression therapy recently with Ivor Brown. Yeah. I've been working with him for about a year and a half. How does that work? Oh, it's fucking. It's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's. Did you see that film about him? No. It's really good. You should see it. Um, anyway, oh. he. he I, I work. Do you get hypnotised? Yeah, slightly. And yeah. you go back to places that you need. He calls it frozen, the frozen present. Mm. So things that happen to you when when you feel trauma, or you know, when you're when you're when something happens, you freeze. Animals run or stay and fight, but humans freeze, mm. and you carry that frozen moment with you, you know, and you frequently act out from there, you know. So when I got it together to run away from home or to leave home when I was 17, it was all all of that stuff, you know, was going on. And I was really bold. Mm. Really, really, really. I mean, I was just always getting thrown out of school. I got thrown out of school for wearing yellow socks. And then I went home and put on purple ones. And <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> and then I went home and put on green ones, you know. Yeah. yeah. Because I, had done, I used to tie-dye everything. Yeah. So I used to tie dye all my socks and my t-shirts and my underwear and everything, and mm. the nun, and eventually they kicked me out just before the junior cert, the, the inter. Mm. And then um, I moved schools, and my mother begged them to take me into another school, and I waited there until I did my my leaving cert. And in the meantime, I did a stint in Ballislaw in the lunatic asylum. So that's a fairly adventurous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What was it like, though, when you were being told that you had to go to a, a lunatic asylum? I mean, what was what were you thinking in your head? Were you thinking, am I mad? Am I? Like, I was very unhappy. Mm. I was very sad. Mm. I was very angry. And I took uh, my father's razor blade one night out of his razor. And I slashed both my wrists. I have scars still. And then I got really scared. And I had myself locked in the bathroom when I started screaming. And Daddy carried me down the stairs. 
brought me off to the hospital. And a nurse told me that it was a sin, what I had done. And that the next time, if I ever did it again, they would tell the police, tell the guards. Mm. So I was all... I, they stitched my wrists, and I did it all wrong. Like I didn't do it properly, you know. Mm. Uh, just thought you did that. You know? Across? <laughs> Across the way. Right. So I got a couple of stitches in each hand, arm, and um, then I, when a doctor came in and he said, we're going to send you someplace for a while and the next minute I was in balance low and a big old lunatic asylum what are you thinking of yourself though you know? I was fucking I was distraught mm. you know I mean Jesus, it's are a funny question because well I mean because are you thinking I'm doing this for a reason and is it are you have you blocked out the abuse at this stage no I hadn't blo- I, I remember just completely think- and I didn't know what to do. And it mm. was just that I was angry and hurt and very, very sad, mm. Mm. you know. Mm. And uh, I just wanted to end my life. Mm. Or I wanted somebody to notice, you know, mm. what was going on, you know. So I talked to a psychiatrist down there and uh, I thought it was in confidence and it wasn't because I wasn't 16. And or I wasn't 18, I was, I was 15. Mm. And he told my parents the stuff that I had been telling them and uh, it wasn't a good outcome should I no. say when I, I, I'll never forget the day I got home I got into lots of trouble for telling lies about my grandfather and my uncle and uh, you know it's the way it was in those days but later on we were all vindicated in family meetings and stuff and you know it was sorted out. And With your parents there? And my parents and my, the other relatives. and mm. it, it was endemic. Is that the word? Epidemic almost in, in my family. In, yeah. In, yeah. So. I mean, it's pretty... It but the sadness and the loneliness in the mental hospital was bad. And I was in with all these old women. It was just like loads and loads of old, old people in there. Mm. There was very few young people. There was nobody young. I was in this uh, big long ward and there was people roaring all night. There was a woman called Madeline. She was there all her life. And she used to roll up um, pieces of newspaper and smoke them. And I used to give her cigarettes because people used to come and give me... I used to smoke major in those days. <laughs> people were throwing packets of cigarettes at me. Uh, and um, it was really scary. And it smelled horrible. And it was fucking proper big rooms with the big locks on the doors and all, you know. Mm. And I didn't really know why I was there, you know. Sorry? I didn't really know why I was there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just, they thought well, that's what you do with somebody who hurts themselves, you know. I mean, the scary thing about it is it's the whole of society is against you. And you know what I mean? It's like... I felt everybody was against me, you know. Well, it's true, though. And I felt it was all my fault. And now I had caused all this pain to my family and everything and mm. um, the nurse said that what did she say I was making a disgrace out of myself you know and so all figures of authority are telling you you're yeah. wrong yeah mm. and up until then I couldn't ever tell anybody about what had happened you know mm. and then um, I spoke to one of my sisters about it and anyways a lot of stuff came out over mm. the years and we've all worked on it and stuff but at that time the decision was 
either stay at school maybe you're going to work in the factory so when I came out of the the, the loony bin I I I decided to stay at school and do my leaving search because for, for some reason I thought that if I had a leaving search it might help me out in some yeah. way yeah. but it never really did if I had had um, a happy home experience I think I would have I would have liked to have gone to college yeah and I really wanted to study psychology mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I was always reading R.D. Lang and stuff. I had R.D. Lang books. and I mean, I was always into, you know, uh, Aldous Huxley, Doors of Perception, oh, and yeah. all that, and taking acid and stuff. I mean, I was, I was nuts. I was always trying to escape. Yeah, but... You know, but that's... That's what you do if you don't like where you are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, were you into music? Heavily into mm. music. I saw Roy Geller a lot of times and the band Taste, remember? All right, yeah. Uh, ran away to see Donovan and Planksy playing on the Iron Islands. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> she had the ticket for that as well. Oh, yeah. That. I was always running somewhere. Mm. And I used to run, I used to escape from the house mm. out a window. And I'd get mm. trashed when I came home, you know. But sure, at least I did it, you know. Yeah. It was always my thing. Mm. I have to do it, you know. Mm. So the first record I bought was, um, well, they gave me, I'd rather go blind from the jukebox in Salt Hill because they were fed up looking at me. Yeah, I was playing, playing it. it. I couldn't, I couldn't buy it anywhere. Chicken Shack version. Yeah, and I, ha- I mean, I had singles. I used to, used to buy singles, yeah. and the first record, the album I bought was um, the soundtrack to Easy Rider. <laughs> oh, really? Because <laughs> every home was on it. Yeah. Oh, well, it was good. The birds. Yeah, 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 it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. that was the first album I bought. I don't know when that was, and um, I had um, two uncles, Kenneth and Gabriel, that I was really close to. And one of them was into Elvis and one of them was into the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And that was great, mighty, you know, because mm. I had that kind of music. And they used to fight about the Beatles and Elvis and oh. the Rolling Stones, you know. So I was really young, like, you know, when I was exposed. And then they went off to America and they brought loads of records back. Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears and Mark Hammond. And oh, yeah. So I had a great, uh, great, yeah. And I listened to the radio constantly. Yeah, yeah. A yeah. little transistor. Yeah. You know, at night, to Luxembourg. Oh, Radio Luxembourg. Luxembourg, yeah, I used to listen to that in bed. Uh, yeah, uh, in the, bed, in the tiny, with the pillow up over your head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Turn off that radio! <laughs> <laughs> it's funny as well, do you, do you, I know when uh, uh, when I heard Beatles songs, I thought, I, I've heard them before, I know all them songs. So it's like almost from when you're a baby, I think you're soaking stuff up, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, they used to shove my pram under the radio, the radio was up on the wall. Mm. You know, on a shelf, and they used to shove my pram under the radio mm. and shut me up because I was I was the oldest in the house, you know. Mm. And my mother played records; she had a record player. Mm. We always had a record player, and they played. Mm. She loved Cliff Richard and Guy Mitchell and all, all that stuff. Mm, so. mm, mm. And then I just uh, you didn't get involved in show business at all. Then you just well, kind of thirty, yeah, which is. Mad, isn't it? Like mad. When's the first time then you started singing? Then, well, the first time I ever sang, I was about seven, and Mm. it was in Renmore Barracks, and Mammy had taught me a song called Two Little Orphans." It was a real miserable song. (laughs) Two little orphans, a boy and a girl. Anyways, I sang that, and then I never sang a note again, really, except around the house until I was twenty-nine. And. Um, a guy called Eric Vitter had moved to Galway and he lived, we had a house and he lived, he was, he rented a room and he played the guitar and he wrote a song for my first daughter Aoife when she was born and it became 
Um, it was number one in Holland, Belgium, Germany. He sold millions and millions of records. Oh. And he met an Irish woman and he married her. He was, Eric, I still work with Eric, 42 years the later. The last albums with yeah, Eric? Yeah, yeah. All the albums with Eric. Oh, okay, okay. He produced them all, except for two. And um, we're working on a big project now, and um, another one. So he knew I could sing because he'd hear me around the house. And when he came back to Ireland after his initial success, he, after about three years, he said, let's do something. And that was in about 1983. Mm-hmm. So we started working together then on an album and at our leisure. Yeah. And put it out in 19... It was put out, we put it out in 1984 and it was in December and it was number one in 1985, I think. Or maybe it was 85, 86. So that's tired and tired emotional. Tired emotional. Yeah. Huh? No, that was amazing. Like, I remember when it came out. Cause it, yeah. Y- yes, uh, I was working in Max Records down there and I'd see posters of you. And you were playing in the back of the inn. I put up those posters myself. Did you? Myself and my partner at the time, Frank Miller, yeah, he was a photographer of the Irish Times. We used to go around fly posts. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was, yeah, we used to do the baggage, yeah. We used to put them on poles and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in a band around then as well. And we yeah. Used to go, yeah, Guernica. Or Guernica. Oh, Guernica, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And uh, I remember them. we'd go out doing the posters and then it became illegal to do Yeah, that. I know. Pat Egan always Pat Egan, yeah. <laughs> we still used to do it. Yeah, yeah. But at night time, yeah, when there's And Frank around. took all the original mm. pictures that I had. You know what those funny glasses? Yeah, that's a brilliant photo. It's a good picture, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. In my homemade dress with my glasses at a wedding, actually. Oh, happened. was it? Yeah, I made that dress for the wedding. Anyway, there you go. Yeah. So. And was that like straight? I mean, you were just straight. Gone. Catapulted yeah, into. That was it. Um, stardom. <laughs> <laughs> into, into a different kind of lunatic. Yeah. So, yeah, it is a, I don't know, I had never even done a gig, um, a proper gig before the album came out, you know. Yeah. We just did it in a studio in Galway. It cost 1,700 quid. Yeah? Yeah. Jesus. And then I fucking gave it to a couple of, a couple of shifty characters who had a record company. They set up the record company just to put the album out. Oh, yeah. And, um, I don't know, all records disappeared, all accounts. Uh, really? After a few. Oh, yeah. One of those cases, yeah. Shite. So it was Warner Brothers who signed me then three years later and we did all the other albums. Under then. the influence then. Yeah. Well, Ancient Dream, we did an EP and then Under the Influence right. and then everything else. Right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I, was, was, I know we, everyone talks about your drinking and everything, but I was surprised to find that you did start only in your, around that time as I well. I first gin and tonic when I was 30. Well, that's mad, isn't it? Well, I mean, I used to do a lot of drugs when I was 15, 16 and 17. 18 yeah. and then I had a sort of um, an awakening when I was 19 I got pregnant and I discovered macrobiotics birth without violence the right. book I was talking about Fre- Frederick Le Boyer. Um I went to London and I studied with Aveline Cushy which was Michio Cushy's wife uh, they brought macrobiotics to the west oh yeah this is like going back in the 70s so. yeah this is when and that would have been and we a set up mad Galway. concept. Yeah, yeah, we set up um, a whole food co-op in Galway. Yeah. And we used to come up, they used to meet in my house and would key in Galway. And we used to come up to Dublin and buy bags of brown rice and seaweed and stuff and yeah. divide it out between the few people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it got really popular. Well, you know, like, you know, and then we set up a whole food co-op and we had a shop in Galway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Co-op. So you were living in a healthy Oh, Jesus, yeah, but I was obsessed, you know. I was obsessed with 
you know. So that was almost like an addiction. And as well, right? yeah, it was. I used to get up in the morning and plan the the day according to the colour of the vegetables and the way I would cut them, because you had to cut them from yin to yang. Which vegetable you're cut? I mean, come on. I used to make tahini spread and make was constantly pureeing baby food and breastfeeding all the kids until they were two. And mm. I think I had a bottle of Guinness once exactly. during that period of time because that's you know. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, cool, you know, to be... Uh, and that was my obsession. Yeah. I wanted my kids to never have the life that I had. Mm, and I thought mm. everything was just going to all be hippie and happy. And I was a big hippie and mm. happy and rosy, you know. Right, so you mean, basically, that was almost an obsession that would keep your mind... The way drink became, I suppose... Later, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose the drink came... I wouldn't say it came with the music business, but certainly been around it all the time, you know, mm. you know, mm. and I just really liked it. You know, <laughs> it was everywhere. It yeah, was free. I actually met you briefly. Did you? Uh, yeah, I was doing. There was a hot press. were doing some kind of a anniversary thing up in Christchurch. Oh uh, yeah, we did it. Uh, no, I think you'd come. You, you, what happened was it was a free bar for about two hours, and it was back then when I don't know, no one had any money, so what people were doing was getting as much drink as possible <laughs> and hiding it. Well, that's what I did anyway. I, so I'd hid about three bottles of wine. Oh no, I kept going back up and getting another bottle, right? And um, but you arrived in anyway, and I didn't know you, but I said, How are you, Mary? And I gave you a bottle of wine. And you drank the whole bottle. Fuck off. You go. Did I? <laughs> now, at that time, I was really impressed by that. So Jesus. it wasn't really? um, something I was shocked. I mean, I was, I was, yeah, that was like rock and roll. You know, I was going, I'm, oh. not, I'm not a real rock and roller. Mary is. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And when, then when I met Shane McGowan, I did, um, I did some gigs at the Pogues when Kirsty was having a baby. Yeah. And it was just after the fairy tale. And Dennis Desmond was managing me, and he said, "Will you do this seven gigs um, because they're all booked?" And Kirsty, you know, was, and I said, "Okay." So all I had to do every night was sing um, the fairy tale wow. and yeah. two other songs. Mm. And uh, and actually, Joe Strummer was at them at the time, and we did. He loved. He really liked me, and mm. got on well with him. We did um, uh, Delaney as well in oh, the yeah, set. Back in the one. Yeah, mm. a shade like that. But I I was a lightweight compared to you know. We had a bucket. A bucket of champagne and tequila slammers yeah. beside our microphones every night. Yeah, yeah. You know, champagne and tequila all mixed yeah, up together. Yeah, yeah. That we used to just a dip bucket in. <laughs> buckets. <laughs> Jesus. A big, you know, those big silver champagne mm, buckets. Mm, mm. Ice bucket type thing. And I mean, I thought I was lightweight compared to they were, but right. I, I never forget. At the end of that two weeks, I was half dead. Mm. But was there a period of that when you was just great crack? Like Jesus, that was all great crack. Yeah, yeah it wasn't yeah. until after that that I started to to worry about it, you know, because I never brought it home. Yeah, it was when I was away and was on the road and when I was working and stuff. Mm. Although I don't remember the time you were talking about. So that's a bit worrying. Well, it was just another. a brief incident. It wasn't like yeah. Did I drink the whole bottle? Yeah, in one go. In one go? No, not in one go. That's what. That's my memory of it. Now, maybe I exaggerated it. How could I drink a whole bottle in one go? I don't know, but... I must have taken it. And maybe... Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe... A couple of goals. Yeah. Yeah, a few goals, yeah. Oh, stop. Well, well, anyway... I remember the day I left my house in Hoth. 
I drank a bottle from, there was 135 steps up to the house because my mother counted them when she'd babysit. She used to be killed walking. It was like you'd walk a few steps and then around and a couple of steps. I, li- I mean, within two years of being in the music business, I bought a house mm. in Hoth in the Bailey on two and a half acres of land Jeez. with tennis courts and it was just humongous. That's amazing. I mean, I used to live in a chalet in Galway two years before that. That's unbelievable. <laughs> I know, yeah. And that couldn't happen now, could it? Because no. you'd be on Spotify. And that's the way, that's the amount of money I was making. And, you know, Jesus. Mm. I remember leaving the house then, about seven years later, when everything turned to custard, and I drank a bottle of Southern Comfort all the way. I, was, I fucked it over the hedge when I got to the end of the steps. <laughs> I have a memory of that. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have a memory of the bottle of wine, but there you go. Yeah, and when you were singing, I think that's what got me anyways when you uh, really seemed to put yourself into the songs. I mean, isn't that something that maybe is part of being troubled, that you can do that? Do you not think there's kind of a double edge to it? You can perform, of course, maybe... Better. Maybe, yeah, but maybe that's also... (coughs) That's where you sing from. Yeah. Because uh, that's where you'd go in your head. I st- I've started to write a play. Or certainly that wouldn't be a bad, uh, that would be a bad thought if you were going to therapy. I mean, I think some people are afraid to do therapy because they, it, they're they afraid it might take away that part. Of them. Well, a lot of people, including my ex-husband Frank, thought that I mightn't be as much crack anymore if I yeah. stopped drinking. People thought that. Yeah. And... Um, or that you wouldn't? Would you? Do you ever think that you wouldn't be able to put the same emotion into a song? Or something? no, it's even no. better now because now you're present for the emotion. Yeah, you know, you know where you're going, mm. and you use it. I use it, you know. Yeah. To make people cry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, no, it's you could just go straight down there, you know, to those memories. Yeah. And especially on that last album, and do the songs that Love Will Tears Apart. That's. Um, a song that we've completely turned on its head. I've been doing it now for about seven years. Mm. And Johnny Taylor, I think, my piano player, was doing a solo one night. And I started thinking about all the stuff in my life. Mm. And what you think about Jordan's solos. I've started to write about that. And I'm working with these people at the moment. And we're doing a musical, a play, or a piece of theatre. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of the stuff is coming from. While the solo is on. While the solo is thinking, playing during yeah. the song. It's where you would start. go to, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then one night we were in Ballancolleg down in Cork and we had done a gig called The White Horse. It was a lovely place. Your man has a big black room up over the pub. Mm. And he fits about 150 people in there. And he said, it's sold out. We'll be doing another night. And I said, ah, oh, jeez, there'll never be another night in it, you know. Mm. So he said, I'd love to do another night anyway. And I said, okay. He said, you can stay local and blah, blah, blah. So we went down the second night and there was about 12 people there. And I said, okay, this is weird. <laughs> so we all got down off the stage and we made a kind of a semicircle and we all sat down, the lads, three lads of the band, had that double, double bass, guitar and piano. Mm. And the people gathered around and I started telling them the stories about behind the songs and some of the stuff that had happened to me mm. and why I sang particular songs and they were going like fuck and I thought it was just a different way of doing it you yeah. know so I said this this is good I like this I could I could work I could do something with this so I started to write then about it you know right yeah 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 I did about all the stuff so I um, 
recently applied to uh, get funding to develop it further. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, when I saw in J.J. Smith's, you were, t- you were telling stories before. Oh, so yeah. Well, no, but this is much... But more. you're talking about it deeper. Yeah, big, yeah bigger. Bigger. Yeah. So hopefully. Yeah, Hopefully. Yeah. So, look at Fuck it. Anyway. You're right. <laughs> so... And is and what point that what was the turning point where you decided I'm going to straighten things out? I mean, I know you were. Oh. It went. You probably, this probably happened a few times, did it? Do you regret? Uh, it? My daughter Claire was born in 1991, mm. and before she was two, I had been hospitalised 30 times for alcohol poisoning. Jesus. Yeah. And it wasn't until I, and it wasn't until I gave up for nine months when I was pregnant. I drank once mm. while I was pregnant, and when she was six weeks old, I went up to the shop and bought a bottle of vodka, and I sat down and drank it all. And then I knew I had a problem, and then it became a problem, and then it just got worse and worse and worse. And as I tried to stop, I drank more. So I would drink for a week and stop for a week and drink for a week and stop for a week and, mm. and that went on. Mm. And um, I ended up in the back of an ambulance going to the hospital on the 16th of March, 24 years ago, coming up now. Mm. And uh, I had a thing called metabolic acidosis, which my body was, I was, I was almost finished, mm. you know, on my... really all my um, organs were shutting down. So they slit my throat and put tubes into my heart and medicine and all that. And then I remember on St. Patrick's Day, laying in the bed, completely isolated. Nobody would come to see me. Everybody hated me. And wondering if I'd ever be able to drink again. That's what you were thinking. Yeah. Mm. So then... They came with kids and everybody came and they said that I couldn't come home. They didn't want me at home anymore. So a friend of mine put me up for a couple of nights and I went into the Rutland Centre and I stayed there for six weeks. And um, yeah, that's when I started to begin to deal with stuff, you know. Mm. And there's a song on that album called Owen, my little about Owen. My son, he was, I don't know what age he was when he used to come to the Rutland. He was seven or eight, and maybe he was ten. And he would, we had family days, and everybody would be asked to sit in the middle of the room, Mm -hmm. and your family would be around in a circle, and all the other families too. You might have, we would be divided up into rooms. There was always about 20 people in there. Mm. So they'd take five or six of us, and all their caring people, mm. their families or their friends. And then you would sit there and then they would just tell you I remember my kids telling me how they felt when I was drinking. And one daughter would pull a pillow outside the door because I used to sleep in the spare room and just wait in case I vomited, you know, and stuff. And, yeah. and Owen said how lonely he was. Really, really lonely living in the house at Holt when I was away all the time, when I didn't think I had a problem. Mm-hmm. And I'd bring him up to the pub and with all his mates and give them a bottle of lemonade and crisps, you know. And he remembered one time that um, I was drunk when I drove home from the pub. 
So that happens every Tuesday for six weeks. And I think really if you take that in, if you're able to take it in, because mm. some people can't handle that kind of honesty, you know. And the kids were very, very honest. They were very upset. And the next day, I remember, after the first or second time it happened, the woman, Yvonne, asked me, how, how, was that? how are you feeling, Mary? I said, oh, grand. And she lit it to me. They used to do a little reality therapy in the Rutland in those days. Mm. They ripped you apart, you know. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's not like it is now. Yeah. And yeah, they, we deal in reality, you know. We heard your kids yesterday. How could you be grand? Yeah. How, 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 how did it feel when you heard your son? Oh, yeah, and then you had to start thinking about it. And then you were on your own. No phone calls, no television, nothing. We weren't allowed outside the door for six yeah. weeks. Just constant one-to-one with the counsellor and group therapy, you know. And, yeah, it dropped, I suppose, the penny. Dropped. That must be devastating. <sighs> yeah, it fucking took me years to get over that. Mm. And a lot of help. Twice a week. Tuesday night, group therapy, and Wednesday I saw a woman called Mara Russell for... I saw I continued to see her for about five years. In the beginning, I saw her once a week, every Wednesday. Mm. And, you know, went through hell. And the kids would search my handbag and my room and my drawers and the boot of the car and mm. smell my breath when I came out of the bathroom and... And she says, well, you know, you just have to put up with it until they get your trust back. So you're going to have to work really, really, really hard, you know, and, you know, just accept it because that's what you've done, you know. That's what I did. And they didn't trust me. So I just had to shut up and put up with that, you know, and try and understand where they were coming from, you know. I didn't understand their pain. I, I, I was in so much pain that it was hard to look at their pain, but it's only when you begin to look at other people around you, their pain, that I think that you're, you're the pain, be- yeah. Is that when you begin to cure yourself? Yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And accept it and then stop beating myself up first because the thing that you do then is you get guilty and then you just really want to drink again. And yeah, can I imagine? It was, it was a long, hard road back, you know. Yeah. But sure, you did it. And how do you... Exi- do you do like meditation now or anything like that? Fuck or? no. No. <laughs> and uh, loud music. No more brown rice. Um, uh, uh, I'm I'm a vegetarian. I have I've been a oh, vegetarian most of my life, but I briefly uh, no I did I did eat meat for a while and back again. Um, the kids were brought up vegetarian and uh, yeah no brown rice is still in the cupboard. You oh, know, is it? Yeah. I'm a bit more adventurous these days with the food I, I cook and eat. <laughs> Um, yeah, so how do I cope? Uh, I, I found that last, last the year I was 59, mm. the beginning of that year, I still felt that I needed to do some more work. So I contacted, I didn't even know if Ibrahim was still working, but he was, and he said he'd take me on, so I had to write my life story for him. And then we began this whole journey of delving into those moments of fear and uh, realizing that all my life I've been living from those places. Everything that I did was, you know, a reaction to all of the stuff that happened, you know? Yeah. 
And then I work with, he works with a, a psychotherapist then, and mm. she sits in on some of the sessions. And, and then, see, I, it went on twice a week, like for a year. It's heavy stuff. Yeah, wow. But I was so scared of becoming 60 and mm. still having this stuff hanging over me. So we've, I, I, I can truly say that I feel great now. Yeah. I've often said that before, but I've never felt this free, you know. All right, really? Yeah, yeah. never. So That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It is, yeah. But it's been a long, that's been fucking 24 years. I must be coming up to... 24 years and... To Woody Allen. <laughs> <laughs> Woody Allen's status with no, the therapist. More even... But I mean, the whole life kind of struggle then, I suppose. Yeah. Whole life struggle, but... Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Mm. but you, know, I've, you know, I've used the music... And the, the, I, you know, that's it hasn't been all hell, you know. No, I know, I know what you I mean. My, yeah. my daughter lives with me, and I have my grandson living yeah, with me, and everything. That's and amazing, actually. I mean, uh, yeah, and they just we we have the best of fun, and we all you know holiday together and eat once a week at least together, the whole family, you know, still. Yeah, grandchildren and my daughter and everything. My grandkids stay with me, and mm. I could never have seen that happening twenty years ago. Right, that's that's incredible. You know, that's so. incredible. Yeah, I, I suppose if you're doing therapy, you start looking at the negative things. But I suppose, I mean, throughout you have to any go through life, you've had great cracks as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fuck yeah. You have to yeah. go through all the stuff before mm. you can kind of see the bigger picture, you know. And then, like, it, it, is it. Oh, Jesus, sorry. Um, my. In, does, do things like that come back, say, when you go through a rough time in your life? Say your relationship breaks up or something like that. Is it, is it difficult to. Uh, uh, do you know what I mean? Does 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 other stuff come no, back? No, I, I see or? it. Well, the, when my marriage broke up, that was mm. pretty fucking. The second marriage was pretty shit. Mm. Um, you know, I I felt for a long time that it was my fault because I had been drinking really badly when when I was with Frank. You know. Yeah. And uh, what does what does what come up? What I'm saying is. Uh, Say you say you 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 go through therapy, you, you get yourself in straight and narrow, but then something a, a life happens. event happens. Yeah. Is it going to throw you? Throw you? No. Well, the first thing I would do would be ring somebody. You know. Yeah. The first thing I would do would would phone a therapist, one of the people that I've been working with, and uh, of course yeah. it throws you. But I I kind of I don't want to say the word relish, but that's the word that comes into my head. I like dealing with it right now, yeah, yeah, and figuring facing out why it, it happened, facing into yeah, it, yeah, and yeah. and looking at all the stuff all around it, and you know, Jesus, I should have seen that coming, or you know, like based on whatever, you know. No, I love it now, and I I uh, enjoy. I suppose it's a kind of a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. Getting through all this. I, I don't um, think of drinking. Yeah, yeah, I think that's some. Uh, can't remember. The, the, there's a book I read anyway. It said that, fa- like, because a lot of people, including myself, would avoid things like ringing up agents or. There's a lot of avoidance that people do, and then you have to learn to to do it, yeah. and then feel good about the fact that you did it. Yeah. And I know that's only a small thing, ringing no, up no, an agent. No, it isn't. It's a big yeah. thing because um, uh, mm. I have given away power to people in record companies and managers, you know, mm. for a long time, and something happened recently, and. My therapist asked me, will, will, will you speak to him? And I said, I would. And she, when I went back the following week, she said, well, have you done it yet? And I said, no. And she explained to me why it would be good for me to do it, you know, mm. from where I was now. 
yeah, yeah. You know, where you are now, this is, you know, so I will do it this week, you know. I've talked to somebody about this, somebody in the business about yeah. something, you know. But it is. Um, I have been called hysterical by people in record companies just because they were fucking me over, you know. And I pointed it out to them and then, you know, you know, they've always been... And I'm not. I'm not hysterical. I may have act, been angry and hurt and, you know, acted out, but I was... You know, they have labels for women like me. And, oh, you know, right, yeah. Hysterical. She's hysterical, you know. Would you get that now in the industry? Because, I mean, it's I pretty, did, yeah. pretty much male-oriented, kind of. Maybe it's changing They now. phoned yeah. my husband, Frank, once, a guy from Warner Brothers, would you deal with Mary? She's behaving hysterically. And the reason I was behaving hysterically was... <clears throat> they decided to put out an album called Love Me or Leave Me, mm. which was a best of hits that Warner Brothers were doing. And they sent me a fax, a fax, mm. 24 hours before it came out, and informing me that it was within their right to do it. And then I got out my contract and I said, if they had waited one more week, they would have had to pay me and get my permission. And then I found a clause in my contract to say that uh, I had complete control over my images, so they couldn't fucking put out an album because I wouldn't give them permission to use a photograph. So they stuck a bunch of flowers on the cover. Jesus. And put it out for Valentine's Day. And then I was ringing the office. I even drove out to the Irish office in Glasnevin, Slaney Road. Warner Brothers had an office out there. And... Uh, they actually phoned Frank and said, Mary's been hysterical, you know. Uh, mm. You know, just it's because it was, you know, what I knew what they were doing, you know. Yeah. If one more weekend that I've had to give me 60 grand, you know. And they had already dropped me. Yeah, yeah. And they just had this small thing in the contract, as they always do. Yeah. So, so they put the bunch of flowers on and the So cover. that would have been, if you were a man, they wouldn't have kind of... Oh, no. Or would it be... No, I don't know what they would have done, but it was just that that's what they actually said. Your mm, wife is being yeah, hysterical. But they talked to the husband, yes. like kind yes. of thing, yeah. Can you believe that? No, it's unbelievable. Yeah, uh, true. Uh, do you think I still have the facts. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> Keep on my facts. The ink has gone a bit uh, weird on the notes, so I've, I photocopied the ones I need. <laughs> right. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. spend my time looking at them, but there are yeah. some things that have, uh, you know, and... Would, would you think, though, that, like, the industry is male-dominated? I know, like, in comedy, sorry, like, I'm doing comedy, and uh, it is, the, isn't the, it? there is a kind of a thing that, I mean, the straight white male is dominating comedy. comedy. So, I mean, I'm a straight white male, but still, I'm just... Or, <sighs> no. I mean, people in the business, all of the people that I've dealt with in on the business side of it have been male. Mm. You know, but like there's huge w women mm. singer. I mean, uh, you know, uh, artists. Mm -hmm. um, but all of the people that I know, I've never met a woman in with Big Cat, with V2, with um, any of the labels that I've worked with have been women. You know, yeah, all men is dominated by men. The business side, but now it's fucked anyway. So. <laughs> so fucking that is Yeah, and it, it is changing a bit because I remember when, uh, say, oh, let's say in the eighties, right? It would be unusual to say, like, you'd have a band now that might just have a female bass player or a female drummer, 
You know, it would have been a huge thing back in the 80s, wouldn't it? Of course, care, yeah. You know, there was, there was, oh, look, well, there's well, a girl who could play an instrument. <laughs> well, in Galway, yeah. there were very few. There were no, uh, what, what I'm, I'm making, inverted commas with my fingers here, there mm. were no jazz or blues musicians. That was all trad. Yeah. So kind of when I, I almost felt that I had to move to Dublin to, to get a band, mm. you know, together. Yeah. And funnily enough, my first band were all the members of Moving Hearts. Oh, was it? Yeah. yeah. And we last, and then Moving Hearts decided to get back together again. Oh, well, that's your band gone. That was the band gone. So I think we did two gigs, and that, then uh, I got new guys. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there you go. But uh, I'm going to wrap it up. But I think, it, like, just how, like you, you know, in classical music, the auditions now are uh, behind the screen. Oh yeah, and that's really? so. And since they started doing that, there's more women in orchestras because really? there's just a, it was a subconscious thing discrimination. Really? Yeah. I didn't so. know that, but there are a lot of women. There always have been in class, but there's always been women in music, but always mm. on the business side. I'd known one female lawyer that was employed by V2, which was Branson's second mm. v- virgin. Mm. One female lawyer. Mm. And Jesus, she was a ball buster, you know? Mm. I mean, she was, mm. well, she was on their side always, you know, obviously. But um, right, yeah. I never, I'd never, I've never come across, and there's very few agents that are successful that are women. Geraldine, uh, I burned it, Bridget Barrett is one of them, and she worked for Vince Power for years, and she looks after Damien Power now, and yeah. the other guy as well, White Ladder. What's his name? Dave, Dave, Uh Oh, yeah, White Ladder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, what's his name? Anyway, David. that's show business. That's show business. <laughs> there's very few women who... Grey. Yeah, David Grey. Yeah. <laughs> And Damien Rice, and she's brilliant, you know, and she's really, she's really worked hard to where, you know, she's very well respected. But, you know, she's one of few. Right, cool. So. Anyway, listen, thanks. You're looking great as well. I know you oh, had thanks, uh, you had a bit of a health scare there. I had four stents put in my heart. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm going off to my cardio rehab. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have my trainers and my jo- tracks at the back of the car. Yeah. And yeah. I feel... A hundred times better than I felt for years. And mm. I have talked to Ivor about it and those blockages that were in my heart because there was a 99% and 97%. Yeah. And the other one was 60 and 40 in two different places. Mm. And I think that they began to unblock. And that was when I had my cardiac events. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and it was during the therapy that it happened that year, you know. Was it? Yeah. I also was diagnosed with a lung disease at the same time, which is grief. It's where you hold all your grief in oh. your lungs. So I think that it's the mani- manifesting of all that stuff. Physical manifestation. Of, yeah. Psychological. So I was f- happy to take the medical intervention. I have a lovely cardiologist. Uh, mm. I trust him mm. because I'd been to the hospital three times and they pawned me off with um, anxiety pills and Salpidine. They told me I was hysterical. Hysterical again. They told me I was having panic attacks and that I was, you know. Yeah. Jeez. And um, no, I was having a little cardiac event. Jesus. So there you go. Mm. And now I'm fine. And now I couldn't walk 150 metres without stopping last August. Mm. And I ran on the treadmill the other day on Friday for five minutes without stopping carrying 12 kilos of weight in each hand. Oh, really? Yes. Jesus, brilliant stuff. So for me, that's a huge Yeah, price. yeah, no, that's It's not a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but that was part of my one hour cardio that I do three times a week. Yeah, so yeah. I'm building yeah. up the run. Oh, yeah, you're looking yeah. great. 
So there you go. And you're doing a good few gigs, I know, because I talked to Jimmy Smith, you know. Well, he, Jimmy, yeah, 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 he's great. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so we're going to have to, we're doing Vicar Street on the 13th yes. of May. The next morning, we're leaving for Australia and New Zealand. Cool. And we're doing seven gigs in Australia. Seven gigs in New Zealand, eight gigs in New Zealand, and uh, eight in Australia. Then we're all going off to Thailand for a holiday. Oh, nice one. Nice one. <laughs> and I'm going to take life easier now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, earn not, some money and blow it on an island in Thailand. Ah, yeah. yeah. You might as well. You have to do that at least once. Yeah, yeah. Never, I've never done that. No. I've never done it, no. <laughs> I've so, never been. So, there yeah. you go. All right, thanks, Mary. Thanks, Mary. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. time it took for you to listen to that interview with the wonderful, brilliant, fantastic, warm-hearted and funny Mary Coughlin, I ended up in Dingle. So I started off the intro in a uh, park up in uh, Garden Street. And now I'm in Dingle, just on the beach here, looking across the sky. There's kind of a few red, wispy, wispy clouds and lots of seaweed that I'm standing and a heron over there and uh, uh, water, the sea. Well, uh, I uh, just want to say, you, uh, sometimes, you know, when I get a name like Mary Coughlin, I get a lot of new listeners. So if you're a new listener, there's a big back catalogue of interviews, 70 other interviews. And uh, the most recent one, I suppose, is Christy Dignam. Uh, there's some other great ones. Angle D is a great one. Willie White is a wonderful one. And uh, Christine Volset. So they're the, some of the obscure ones that are really well worth listening to. And then, of course, you have your names that you will well, listen to me walking on the old crickly crackly dry seaweed. <laughs> the wind is pretty bad here, isn't it? Sorry about that. So uh, you could also contact me on my Twitter. So yes, I was, uh, did I say leave a review? Yeah, I didn't know. So leave a review on iTunes. Please do that and a star rating, and that would be very helpful to me. Uh, you can get me on my Twitter at Joe Rooney One. And uh, who's another one? Another one I've forgotten. Dave Johns, who starred in I Daniel Blake, is a wonderful interview. Um, yeah, I've just come in out of the wind there, so that's much better. So, uh, you can also get me up my website, www.joerooneycomedian.com. I'm on Instagram, Joe Rooney Comedian, I believe, or whatever. And, um, Facebook, obviously. Um, please do contact me, send me a message, give me a reaction, give me a feedback, and leave a message and leave a review. Uh, I'll be doing a play in May. I'm not doing many live gigs coming up. I have a few, but um, the main thing is I'll be rehearsing in April for the Chastitude, which will be on in the Gaiety the last week of April and the rest of May. Most of May, perhaps not, uh, up to the end of May, I think. And then, I'll uh, <laughs> tell you what, I had some doing, but I'm doing gigs again, but I'm doing Glastonbury. Whee! For sure. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's great. Um, uh, thank you to Daniel Rooney for doing the music. 
and uh, thank you to um, everybody who's uh, subscribed and uh, listened in the last two over two years it's been wonderful I've got uh, some Brent Pope coming up but before that coming up in in a podcast I mean and he's uh, he, he, I'm going to talk to him this week but before that I've uh, done quite a few interviews when I was over in America and in Leeds I met some great people backstage and the people I was gigging with and uh, I'm going to do a compilation of those and and put in little bits of music in between that'll be great it'll take me take me feckin ages to do it and as I say I don't get paid for this so uh, I put in a few proposals to RTE but they're not interested so uh, I'll continue to do this off my own fucking bat but if you're interested in sponsorship for this podcast too give me a ring if you've got a business selling something uh, and you'd like to uh, we can uh, work something out just give me an email or a fucking tweet yeah so uh, thanks t- for listening and, and Helen if you're listening here's your laugh it's funny how the spring has come and made me grow i'm laughing up this sun from head to toe
I can't believe I just scratched that car. Find my insurance card. Dude, what do you have in this glove box? Ew, are these socks dirty? Oh, forget about the socks. I need my insurance card. Just pull it up on the State Farm mobile app. But I can do that? Oh, hey, I can do that. Yep, it's called service. I can file a claim on here, too? Yeah, it's it's called service. Whoa, I can call my agent, too? It's called service. Insurance with local agent? It's called service. Call State Farm agent Megan Roberts in Atlantic today. 